Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. Hey, y'all. Good morning. Oh, that was, yeah, I'm feeling that. Hey, I just want to thank Zach for inviting me to come. I'm honored. My husband's actually preaching right now, too, in Dallas, where he's the pastor at Dallas Bible Church. And so this is a first for us. We're in two different places, both speaking at the same time. It's kind of fun. Um, Well, hey, I wanted to just get real with y'all real fast because we don't have a lot of time, but um, I really struggle with a lot of fear. Just, man, I'm like, my name is Kat. You could just call me Frady Cat. I'm afraid of everything, it feels like. But you know what is most significant for me is the fear of inevitability. I mean, sometimes we talk about it as destiny or pattern or addiction or cycle or system. I don't know. All of it completely freaks me out. And I didn't really realize it until 2008 that I'm really afraid of the inevitability of things happening, uh, that like I'm destined for failure, that uh, the addictions from my father's side of the family that have just wrecked generations of of us, that's going to affect me and I feel like it's coming for me. Um, You know, or sometimes it could be maybe for you it's at work. You know, you just feel like you're in the same just cycle. You keep getting overlooked for the same promotion, and you go to a new place. Maybe you fear that this is going to be the same thing. It's just going to happen again. It's just kind of destined to be what it is. For some of us, it's broken relationships. Maybe you've really epically messed something up in the past, and you're trying again, and you think, am I just going to repeat the cycle? So I really fear inevitability, but it's just going to happen. I didn't realize this until I voiced it out loud in a seminary class, which is grad school for people who study the Bible. And in 2008, I was in a course, and I realized I realized my fear, and then my fears were realized. <laughs> um, so I'm sitting in a course, and my professor the day, that day, he said, hey, I want to talk about women learning about Jesus. Well, I'm like super invested in this conversation. I spent like 40 grand trying to do that. Um, it's fine that we make so much money when you're in ministry, so it's totally fine. Um, I paid off my loans like a decade later. But anyway, uh, you know, I was super invested in this conversation, women learning about Jesus. And he said, let's just talk about it. What do you think about women learning about Jesus? And in a moment of vulnerability, which is just not my MO, I raised my hand and admitted to the whole class, I'm afraid to learn too much about Jesus because I am a woman. And I started a process that is ridiculous. Why would I say that? Do I really think that? Where did that come from? I started processing, and you know what? My inner dialogue was interrupted by one of my male colleagues. He turned his whole body, he pointed at me, and then he raised his his voice and he said, just stop, just stop. He said, women can learn too much about Jesus, and when they do, they become a threat. They are a danger to the local church. They threaten the institution of the church and they threaten the institution of marriage. So I realized my fear and then my fears were realized. (laughs) 
And you know what, the, the professor that day, he's a hero, right? He jumps in, he like defends my honor, defends the inclusion in the, of women in the classroom and seminaries. He silences the nonsense, right? And then he calls for a bathroom break, thank God. I am like <laughs> sprinting to the bathroom for an ugly cry. I just wanna hide. I mean, I'm so grateful that the professor defended me. I, I very much was encouraged by that, but I had been humiliated. Not only did I admit to the class something that I think is embarrassing and silly and nonsense, but then one of my colleagues affirmed that my fears were real because women can learn too much about God. Would you believe that he followed me to the bathroom? Oh, he did. Yeah, he got one foot in the door and he pried it open with his arm and he was like, I've got one question for you. Why are you even here? It's a George Costanza moment. I mean, you're never prepared for this. You know, you're like, oh, why didn't I have something, you know, spicy and whip right back and put him in his place? But instead, I just cried. You know, I just stuttered through saying, I'm here for the same reason you are. And now I look back and I'm like, well, I'm not sure that that's true. But anyway, I, at the time, I thought that was true. You know, um, I gathered myself, wiped off the mascara. Nevertheless, I went back to that class. I finished my degree. You know, a lot of people, when they hear this story, they're like, what is his name? You know, women are like taking off their earrings. I'm ready to defend your honor. Like, where does he live? Do you know, I don't know his name. And he really is not the point of the story. He asked me a question that he intended to use to harm me. And instead, God has really used it for my good. Why am I even here? Why are you even here? You know what? I have like imagined in my sanctified imagination, like rehearsed what I would say, if I could just go back in time and take state, you know? It's like, oh, if I could just go back in time, I know what I would say. You wanna know what I'd say? Okay. Yeah, I would have said, you know what? I think the progress we've made to dignify women as image bearers of God, it's not enough. And I think the church has participated in gendering the greatest commandment. I think we've made loving God with our heart and soul women's work. And I think we've made loving God with our mind and strength men's work. And I'm not here for it. I don't think that's how it was originally intended. I don't think that was Jesus' intent. And then I would have said, you know what? Women who love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength are not a threat to the institution of marriage or to the local church. Women who love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength are a threat to egos. Yeah, they're a threat to power structures. Ooh, and they are a threat to the enemy. And I wish I'd said that, but I did it. It was nothing like that. It was nothing like that at all. You know, I had to really dig because this guy didn't start the fire. He just added fuel to it. Like all of these doubts and fears inside of me, the inevitability of me getting too much information, that was already there before he kind of yelled at me. Not kind of. He really yelled at me. And so I had to dig a little bit deeper, like, where did this start? And you know what? For me, it was Eve. Eve from Genesis. She was easily deceived. And you know what? If I'm honest, I used to think that women, all women, are easily deceived. They cannot be trusted with important information. They are destined for epic failure, which is really messed up. But I'm going to show you what a passage of Scripture this morning that I think redeems Eve's story from John chapter 20. 
And then I also want to talk a little bit about church history. You know, a lot of us, maybe you feel new to the faith or you're back for the first time in a long time. We have a rich, rich history of faithful people that have gone before us to figure out the way of Jesus, this new way to live. And thankfully, they weren't totally together, so we can relate to them. They made big mistakes. We're going to look at some of our early church fathers and the way that they viewed Eve and how that impacted me and maybe it's impacted you. So with that, why don't you pray with me, and we'll get into John chapter 20 together. Father, we just ask that your presence would be really clear today, and that we could learn from you. We want a new way to live, because the way that we have been trying, it's not working for us. So we want some divine intervention from you, and we trust that you can do that today, here with this group of people. We want to do it huddled around the Bible. We want to look at this ancient text. And we pray, God, that you would make it relevant for our lives today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's talk about Eve, since I thought all women were easily deceived because of Eve's representation of us in Genesis chapter 3. Do you all remember what Genesis starts with? The first three words of Genesis, you know it. In the beginning, that's right. So Moses is telling us about our first beginnings of humans, talking about the way God set up our world, all of the spiritual and physical realities. And you remember what happens? Eve is in the garden and the serpent approaches her and he asks her some doubt-filled questions, some cunning questions, and she believes his lies and then she acts upon them and then she screwed it all up, all of it. Like, the systems are broken, people are broken, relationships are broken. Thank you, Eve, um, for doing that. So Eve was deceived in the moment. And I want you to see what some of our early church fathers said about Eve. See if I can read them from here. Who do I have first? Tertullian? Yes. Do you not know that you are each an Eve? The sentence of God is on this sex. Oh, he's talking only to women. (laughs) Of course. Um, The sentence of God on the sex of yours lives in this age. The guilt must of necessity live too. Okay, let's move on. He goes on to say, you are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him, whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. You destroyed so easily God's image, man. Oh, okay. Well, thank you, father of Latin Christianity. Okay, next. Who do we have next? Oh, Thomas Aquinas. As regards the individual nature, woman is defective. Uh, For the active force in the male seed tends to be the production of a perfect likeness in the masculine sex, while the production of a woman comes from a defect in the active force or from some material indisposition or even from external influence. (laughs) Okay. He goes on to say, he doesn't. Oh, do we go to Martin Luther? We got a hit on Luther. He's pretty important. For women, seems to be a creature somewhat different from man in that she has a dissimilar members, a varied form, and a mind weaker than a man. Although Eve was a most excellent and beautiful creature, how does he know that? What, I don't, okay, like unto Adam, is it because she was naked? I don't understand. Like unto Adam in reference to the image of God, that is with respect to righteousness, wisdom, and salvation, yet she was a woman. For as the sun is more glorious than the moon, through the moon is the most glorious body, so woman, through she was the most beautiful work of God, yet she did not equal the glory of the male creature. Well, you know, they did a lot for our faith, and sometimes they got it really wrong. But you've got 
leaders like John Piper and Mark Triscoll who have perpetuated some of these misogynistic views about women that go so far back and they pull from Eve the way I was. And so I want you to turn with me to John chapter 20 and we're gonna read verses one through 18 together. So whether you have your Bible or you're on your device, flip open to John chapter 20 verses one through 18. And I wanna read to you um, a passage of scripture from John's gospel. Do you remember what John's gospel starts with, the first three words of John's gospel? In the beginning. Yeah, when Moses is talking about in the beginning, he's talking about first beginnings in the book of Genesis. When John is talking about in the beginning, he's talking about our new beginnings in Jesus. Many Old Testament scholars will tell you that Genesis and John are like parallel study guides. They go together. And so this is our new beginning, and John's just building and building and building in his storytelling, and he's working to the climax, and the climax is, of course, Jesus, in John chapter 20. And so let's read this story, and I want you to be thinking about Eve the whole time. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, and so she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. And at that, Peter and the other disciple, they ran, headed for the tomb, and the two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. So much shade. I mean, John was younger, you know, like John was younger. So he, got, he saw the linen cloth lying there, and he did not go in. And then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb, he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the wrapping that had been on the head was not lying where the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. And so the other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in. He saw and he believed. What, what did he believe? Well, verse nine says, they did not yet understand the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. So he didn't believe that Jesus was alive. He believed something else. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying, but Mary. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? And she said, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know it was Jesus. And he says to her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? And this is so money. She says, supposing he was the gardener. And you know what? She wasn't right, but she wasn't wrong either. He is the cosmic gardener. What happened in the beginning in the Garden of Eden with Eve is now we're going to see some parallels to in the new beginning in John's Gospel with Mary Magdalene. The cosmic gardener is about to replant humanity. Keep in mind this tomb where she was visiting was in a garden. They call it the garden tomb. Supposing that he was a gardener, she replies, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will take him away. And all Jesus had to say was her name, Mary. She turns around. She says, Rabbani, which means teacher. He says, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to the Father, to your Father, to my God and your God. And the best part of the passage is that Mary Magdalene went. 
Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he said to her. I want to point out a couple things to you. First of all, I want you to think about Eve in the Garden of Eden, and I want you to think about Mary Magdalene in the Garden Tomb. I want you to think about the fact that Eve was already in the garden when we learn about her story. But John is so intentional to tell us that Mary comes from, what did he say? Outside the garden. In Eve's story, she was placed in the garden by God's initiative. Remember, he did it. But in John's story about Mary, he's clear to say she came from outside the garden on her own initiative. In Eve, in her garden, the lights are already on. We can assume that's part of the narrative of how God created the world. The lights are already on. But John makes clear that in Mary Magdalene's garden tomb, it's still dark outside. Do you see what John is doing? He's building a setting for us of in the beginning there was the first garden, and in the new beginning there's a new garden. And eventually we know God's going to come back and make a big new garden. In Eve's story, she's in the garden with the lights on, But in Mary's story, it's still dark outside. You know, there's a lot of talk about how Eve was created after Adam. We make much ado about it. But in Mary's story, she's the first. Hashtag it, please. She is the first to see Jesus risen from the dead before Peter, before John. In Eve's situation, she's facing a fruit-producing tree of life. In Mary Magdalene's story, she's facing a tomb, the resting place of death. In Eve's story, when she looks at that fruit-producing tree of life, she goes to pick fruit, and there's fruit on it, isn't there? In Mary Magdalene's story, when she's standing in front of the tomb, the resting place of death, there is no body. In Eve's story, she initiates the curse that's on us all, that we need redemption. In Mary Magdalene's story, she's the first to see the resurrected Jesus, the good news that's for us all. In Eve's story, she's approached by the serpent. In Mary's story, she's approached by angels, and then Jesus. In Eve's story, the serpent approaches her with cunning questions to sow seeds of doubt. In Mary's story, the angels approach her with compassionate questions about why she's crying. In Eve's story, she eventually gets ousted from the garden, doesn't she? She gets away from God's presence. And as soon as she recognizes what they've done, they hide in their naked shame. Guess who's missing their clothes in Mary's story? Jesus. He's the one missing the clothes in the story. And Jesus is the one coming near with the presence of God to Mary Magdalene. In Eve's story, she was deceived. In Mary's story, she was commissioned. Eve's story, she rebelled. In Mary's story, she obeyed. Do you feel the repurposing that John is doing? He does it through his whole gospel with the book of Genesis, talking about our new beginnings. And so I want to propose a couple things. Hang with me. If Jesus is the second Adam, I wonder if Mary Magdalene is the second Eve. I wonder if it is the second, yes, the second Eve. I wonder if Mary Magdalene's story redeems Eve's. I wonder if it's the literary redemption we all really need to hear. And I want to be really, really poignant to say the gospel is safe with women. Mary Magdalene shows us that. 
Women don't have to be easily deceived because curses die on the cross with Jesus. And what we have to be careful about is John chapter 20, I mean, the news is Jesus, right? The message is that Jesus is risen from the dead. Nothing will rival that. But I wonder if we would unleash our churches, unleash a generation of men and women, if second to the message that Jesus is the news, we remind them that the first messenger was a woman. She was the first to literally bring it. And so for those of us who feel the, the fear of inevitability, that we're, just, we're like destined to fail, like the addictions of our past, they're just gonna, they're gonna haunt us forever. We'll never see like relationship triumph. We're just gonna mess every single one of them up. Jesus shows us that in him we have an epic Eden redo. Mary Magdalene shows us. You know, I don't run unless I'm being chased. So I mean, I just don't run. But I have been told by runners that it's a really uh, good place to think. Is that true? Anybody run? Yeah, good place to think. I mean, I can think while I'm sitting, but that's fine. Um, it's a great place to think. You know, I just wonder, like, what was Mary Magdalene thinking as she's running to the upper room to tell her brothers that Jesus is alive? Was she thinking, I was healed from seven demons, and they're never going to believe? They're going to think I've done a relapse. I mean, if I had been in the upper room, I would have been like, uh, Dr. Luke, could we check on the formerly crazy lady? I don't think we should open the door. Like, we're being hunted. Jesus is dead. It was all a lie. Keep the door locked. I mean, proverbial speaking, we should open doors for women, right? But I think about Mary Magdalene running with the gospel news to the upper room. And she had been healed from seven demons. Think about what joy that brought Jesus to heal her physical body because she needed to run with the most important message we've ever heard or to heal her mental capability so that she could speak the most important message we've ever heard. So I wonder if she was thinking, I was delivered to deliver this message. I was healed to deliver this healing message. And I picture Mary, because I don't run, but I own Lululemon, I picture her, you know, like... <laughs> What does a first century woman look like running? What does she look like? Because I know she wasn't sporting her Nike breeze, right? She would have had sandals on and her feet would have been crusty and, and dusty and dirty. I know she wasn't rocking her Lululemon wonder under four-way wicking stretch material with anti-stink stitching. She wasn't. I want you to think about how much fabric does a first century woman have to gird to run. And then I think, what kind of support <laughs> does a first century woman have when running? You know, were her movements so undignified? She's running with a huge amount of cloth. I think she would have been crusty and dusty and dirty and stinky and sweaty, and I wonder, was she still crying? Like, was her face stained with like the stink of tears and the sweat from running? And then what happens when she gets to the door? I mean, are you like, oh, a minute. I don't know, is it that or is it like, let me in? I have the most important thing to tell you. Does she go, it's okay, let me in? I don't know, I can't wait to ask her. I'm gonna ask her all of these questions because when I picture a first century woman running, I picture someone who is undignified and maybe had just recently been healed. 
is trying to find her literal legs under her and knows, we know from Luke's gospel, they don't believe her. We have so much trouble believing women. That's not a new problem. They have to go and see for themselves. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, if I'm Mary Magdalene, if I put myself in her spot, am I willing to look so undignified? Will I go with the message that Jesus is alive even if I know they won't believe me when I get there? And the question I have for us this morning is do we need an epic Eden redo like Eve did? She had to wait a long time to get it through Mary Magdalene's life and testimony. But Mary Magdalene is now called the Apostle of the Apostles. I mean, think about when Jesus huddled up his, his faithful followers on the mountain before he ascended into heaven, and he says, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples. I wonder if they pictured Mary Magdalene. She's the only one that had done it successfully in obedience. Man, she went with the gospel so fast she had to run. And so I think for some of us, there's a message there. I think for some of us who feel very secure in who we are in our relationship with God, that you just need to be reminded this message is so important. Go ahead and look undignified. Go ahead and go and tell people. Go with the gospel at a pace so urgent, you must run. So whatever it is, you know, that's like holding you back or like tempering your enthusiasm for God, whatever societal things that go here in Austin, like it's not cool, it's not hip, like we're all, you know, walking on eggshells. I wonder if, like Mary, we're just like, screw it. <laughs> like he said to go and tell my brothers. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. I think that's a message for some of us this morning. If you're already in relationship with God, if you feel like what Jesus accomplished in his life and death and resurrection is true, man, pick up the pace. Follow Mary's example. Go so fast that you've got to run. And even when you get there, if they don't believe you, tell them anyway. Tell the truth. But I think for a lot of folks maybe like me, Mary Magdalene's story redeems Eve in a way that gives me a second chance, that interrupts generations of alcoholism in my family, that will interrupt broken re uh, relationships uh, when it comes to marriage in my family. Maybe my husband and I have a chance. Maybe we'll go all the way. I think for someone like me, it's will my education really ever produce opportunities that I was really hoping for? Or will I just kind of be stuck in that cycle? And maybe for you, it's radically different things. Maybe you look at your children and you think, I don't want them to feel the dark night of the soul for as long as I felt it, for as deeply as it resonated with me. I don't want that for them. Will they inevitably go through that rite of passage in their faith? Are they destined to feel their failure so that it cripples them the way I have? Maybe you look at your spouse and you think, is he gonna turn, like, become my father? Are they gonna become my mother? Are we just gonna relive the crazy in our family of origin? I think for us, we have to look at Mary Magdalene's story and go, we've got a fighting chance in Jesus. He can break the systems. He can restart them. He can renew or restore 
Austin, Texas. And he can do it through us. You know, when I think of Mary Magdalene's story, I think about this incredible woman running and not being believed, being an example we follow. For some reason, I've just pictured myself in a garden and I feel like that inner critic, maybe you call it the accuser, maybe you call it lies, maybe you call it the enemy. That inner critic says, you're just like your mother Eve. You're just like her. And instead, what we should hear is Jesus commissioning Mary Magdalene and saying, go and tell your brothers. Jesus is alive. Epic Eden Redus, that's what he does. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the band to come up and just want to take a moment and let that word picture of Mary running just really settle into our souls. God, we offer ourselves to you the way we are right now, not fixed up, just here we are. Some of us are very burdened by our past, by our parents, by what seems to be broken systems all around us. I know for me it brings a lot of fear, God, and I want you to cast that out. I want your perfect love to replace that. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here this morning. That if the truth about Jesus is making sense for the first time, God, would you illuminate, illuminate their mind to believe truth? I trust you to do that, God. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who need you to break a cycle in their life. We pray, God, that they would feel unencumbered by fear and doubts. We pray instead that they would feel loved and accepted in your presence. That the hope of starting over would flood their soul even in this, this moment. We pray for those of us who feel really burdened by the systems that are so broken around us and feeling helpless, like how do we fix it? How do we make it right? How do we make it better? God, we pray that we would look to Mary Magdalene's example. She put one foot in front of the other. She wasn't believed and yet she still went. We pray that we would follow in her footsteps. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.